Hello, and a big welcome back to the Building Our Future podcast for our regular listeners, and an equally warm hello to any first-timers. I'm Bert Broadhead, and today I'm meeting the Director of Development of one of the UK's largest property owners, exploring the changing requirements for developing new urban extensions on a scale that effectively equates to building whole new towns. In some cases, the timescale of these can be measured in decades. We'll be talking modular building, the role of build to rent, the do's and don'ts of community engagement, and the role of the smart city movement and other technology in shaping the future of the built environment. My guest today is Fiona Fletcher-Smith. In 2018, Fiona left City Hall, where she was Executive Director of Development, Enterprise and Environment, to join LNQ, where she is Group Director of Development and Sales, responsible for delivering the registered provider's stated aim of constructing 100,000 new homes in the next decade. One of LNQ's flagship projects is Barking Riverside, a 443-acre site where their vision is to create a brand new riverfront town in East London and deliver a thriving new eco-district comprising 10,800 homes, new schools, commercial and cultural offerings along two kilometres of Thames River frontage. Barking Riverside will be an innovative, healthy and well-connected new neighbourhood, made unique by its rich heritage, diverse ecology and exceptional riverfront location. That I may have got that from your website rather than, <laughs> <laughs> rather than my intuition. It sounded familiar. Um, but Fiona, thank you very much for, for coming in and welcome to the Building Our Future podcast. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Um, so may you start by just telling us a little bit more about the Barking Riverside project, just so we can understand the, the sheer size and complexity of what you're undertaking. Well, as, as you've already said, it's absolutely huge. It's, it's almost 450 acres. The most amazing thing about it is you're building a new piece of London out there, and you rarely get the chance to do that. It's also an affordable part of London. So we're going to be building homes that are accessible for people so people can afford to buy their own home or to buy a share of their home or to rent their own homes. And as you mentioned, it's on the river. The local borough leader, Councillor Darren Rodwell, keeps referring to it as Barcelona on Thames. And I think I, I buy into that vision. When you're out there on a sunny day and you're watching the seals on the foreshore, it is absolutely beautiful and still incredibly well connected. So we now have three bus routes that link it back into Barking Town Centre. And for those of you working in the city, it's only two stops away from Fenchurch Street, which um, people don't realise how close it is. What's there at the moment? Well, at the moment, it's when you go out there, it's still quite industrial. So you have to go through some of the old industrial heritage of, of the area. We have quite a lot of housing there already. We've got our new plots. We've just finished our most recent plot of flats there. But there's an existing residential community that's been there for about 10 to 12 years. So it's still quite, it's still quite in its early stages. The industrial heritage, some of it's amazing. It's all Victorian red brick buildings. They are listed in some cases and they're going to have some amazing uses put into them. Hopefully, fingers crossed, something relating to the arts, something that's going to draw people who don't live there, draw people to come right. and visit the place. And what will LNQ's role be in the delivery of this, this new town? So we are a joint venture partner for the Greater London Authority. So it's a more or less 50, so 51% owned by uh, L&Q. And we will work jointly with the mayor's office and the mayor's team at City Hall to, to build out the plot. Now, we won't build it all ourselves. For example, we're talking to Be First, who are part of uh, the Barking and Dagenham Council arrangements out there. They may build some for us. Um, Bellway are already building there. 
but ideally we'll build quite a bit of it ourselves. Um, and our job will be to, to make sure it happens, really. What will the eventual ownership structure of the houses look like? How, how many will L&Q retain versus sell off? At the minute, it's about 50-50 affordable and for sale. Now, within the affordable, about 50% of that 50, so 25% overall, will be for shared ownership. And at L&Q, we've been building shared ownership now for about 30 years, so it's a well-known product for us. It's for people who can afford a mortgage, but they can't get the 10% of the outright value for a deposit, which is you know, really quite high in, in London terms at the minute. So getting a 10% of a 25% share together is a lot easier. So shared ownership is very, very popular. As I say, we've been doing it for 30 years and we think Barking Riverside is a great place for it. We have 13,000 people, this is LNQ alone, 13,000 people on our waiting list who are eligible. So they've passed the mortgage test, they've passed all the local connection tests, eligible to um, buy our shared ownership products. So we really need to tap into that demand. But there will be homes for sale and there will also be homes for rent. These are people that have actually what, approached LNQ, gone through yeah. your system. Yeah, gone through our system to see can they afford the mortgage, can they afford the rent. And that's 13,000. And, and as an association, and we're one of the biggest, we only build about 1,000 a year. So it's huge demand for shared ownership. The limiting factor in terms of the delivery of Barking Riverside is going to be how quickly you can build the homes rather than how quickly you can sell them. Well, there'd be a bit of both. On the for sale, we do need to be careful about absorption rates as any developer needs to be. But because we're a housing association, we're, we're not tied into that traditional house builder model. So we can build far faster. And that's the intention. So one of the reasons that the GLA were keen to have us as a partner is to accelerate, to go faster. Londoners need homes. Londoners need somewhere between 66 and 100,000 new homes a year. Uh, we can do it. Of the private stock, um, is the intention to hold any of that back as for rent uh, kind of PRS or, or will it all be yeah. sold? We're, we're looking at PRS and we're particularly talking to other providers to see if they'd like to work with us on, on rented stock. We're big fans of PRS. Uh, we have about 2,500 units already and we think an area like Barking could be a great place for for private rented. We've already got one block there that's renting really, really well. People are very happy living there. And as I said earlier, it's so well connected, surprisingly well connected. You almost need to go out there to to see how well connected it is back into the jobs in the city. And we we were talking about it just before we started recording, but it it makes consummate sense if you're going to rent from a landlord, rent from one who has a... uh, an ongoing custodial responsibility to promote the area. It should be a fairly mutual beneficial relationship. Absolutely. I'd say it's a complete no-brainer. We, we're like one of the, the great estates, really. We're, we're going to be there for the long term. So we're not, again, we're not like a traditional house builder in that we build it in Scarper. We are there. We own the stock in the long term. Um, it's our job to look after it for the next 100, 200 years. We're also, because we're a charity, we're an ethical house builder. So all the profit we make and any profit we make from rented or from the sales goes back into the business and goes back into subsidised, more affordable housing and build more. And I think that's really quite attractive to people in the, in the current world. You know, you, you want to know your money's doing some good as well as providing you with a home. I think most of us are aware of there is a great wall of money trying to get into the build-to-rent sector, the PRS sector, and yet most of the product at the moment is um, multifamily apartment blocks. And we've also got a lot of very large consented sites for single-family homes, and one of the issues is rate of delivery, how quickly can house builders build them out. So not an obvious marriage here of do you, 
more people thinking along your lines of kind of effectively these town extensions or mini urban hubs which can have long-term owners the problem for us in london is you don't get these kind of opportunities very often you've got barking riverside you've got greenwich peninsula Mm. you've got these great brown sites now they need an incredible amount of remediation to make them work Um, so millions goes into the ground to clean it up and often you need huge public sector investment first before there are investment-ready opportunities. You then marry that with uh, planning policy, which is, is often sort of focused on just pure numbers yeah. and doesn't think about demand, who the people are, who are going to buy, who they're going to rent. And I think local authorities need to do a lot of more fine-grained work about the type of area they want to create, who they want to attract into it. And what we've seen in, in lots of places is they're, they're sort of pioneers occasionally, aren't they? And they're often people who go into a new area and rent first, I rented a flat in Deptford probably 25 years ago, and Deptford was fairly edgy 25 right. years ago. But it was it was cheap, it was great accommodation, and it was zone two. Um, and I, now I go back to Deptford as a completely different place because there were pioneers who rent, then buy, establish families. It contributes to the local economy. They send their kids to local schools. Everyone gets a, gets a lift from that. So we we think about housing numbers at a London level and we need to think right down to what is the place of Barking Riverside like, not even just Barking and Dagenham Council area, Um, and then develop what people want to rent or buy. And and all of this sounds entirely sensible, but also massively complicated. (laughs) So so with an ambition to build 100,000 new homes... Each um, location is going to need its. There's, there's no one one size fits all solution. So how how do you kind of focus on the minutiae while also being able to reach uh, the scale of your ambition? Well, the first thing to say that the hundred thousand won't all be built by us. So within that, there's probably about forty thousand we'll try and enable through sale of land. So for example, LNQ Estates that used to be Gallagher's in the Midlands, we will sell land to other house builders and enable housing to happen. But where where we're trying to build ourselves, yes, it is an amazing ambition. But the thing I I've learned from my time in City Hall, my time in local government is you've got to go with a grain of a place. So where we might build um, large, shiny towers somewhere like Greenwich Peninsula, that's not going to work in um, the greenfields sites that I have on the edge edge of Leamington Spa. So it's about being really conscious of what the local market is, what the local planning authority need, and and work with the grain of the place. Because, you know, you've got to build something beautiful that people want. And me throwing a glass tower on the edge of Leamington Spa is really not good. It's not going to sell. It's not what people want. Where do you draw the line between um, community engagement and directive decision-making at developer level? For us, we, we want to, because we're one of the greatest states we're, and we're a housing charity, we're going to be around for a long time. So having long-term relationships with local communities really matters to us. So long before we put in a planning application in Warwickshire for, say, our, our new scheme at Gallows Hill, we've been on the ground working with local communities about you know, what, what works for them, what are the issues, so that when we're putting in the planning application, we're saying to the local authority, local people are telling us there's some traffic problems at this junction, here's a potential solution for you, right down to the grain of the local scout hut's roof was falling in. And, and that's a really simple thing for someone of our size to fix, which really makes a difference to the kids locally. And then when our new residents move in, there's a proper scouter for them all to use. We do want profit because profit for us is back into the charity to subsidise the charitable purpose. 
But we don't want to really, really hack off local communities so they don't want us to build. And especially when we're going to new areas. I mean, we're unknown in the Midlands um, and we're certainly fairly unknown in the Northwest, although we have just announced our plan to acquire Trafford. Yeah, I'll, I'll be not for much longer. Um, <laughs> something like um, Barking Riverside. Um, work started on the site originally in 94, I believe, through Bellway. So when you come in midway through a project, what kind of uh, freedom is there for you to still put your stamp on how the community and, and plan will emerge? Well, Bellway started to, to a master plan that had been agreed with the GLA. Since we've taken over, we have modified the master plan, but generally it was actually really good. Um, the big thing for both Bellways when they started and for us is getting a transport link. So we've been focusing a lot of energy onto the rail line link to link it into the main line and the, yeah. the spur into Barking Riverside. And from my days in City Hall, um, I have tremendous experience of how long it takes to get transport sorted. That has been a big focus. And the master plan really emerges from the town centre around the train station and utilising the river and facing the river and using that amenity. The master plan didn't need an awful lot of change when, when we took over. But for us, it's, it's about the quality of the place and the build. And you can see down there already some of the green and open spaces and our attention to the ecology of the area. We, we just put a lot of time and thought and effort into that and make sure that works. So those are sort of the tweaks that we have undertaken with the current master plan. But it was, it was good to start with. And as a um, developer and long-term owner, so clearly there is stakeholder engagement at the onset, yeah. but I suppose it's you're, you're constantly needing to check the pulse of um, community engagement. Are you finding that technology is making that kind of stakeholder engagement uh, easier or, or is it slightly complicating it by potentially giving more people more of a voice? Both. <laughs> and. I come from a background of uh, a very old-fashioned approach in many ways because planning is still very, very old-fashioned in how it engages. So, for example, with, with the London plan, the, the last version, the version before the current one, um, we were obliged to go and stand in shopping centres with a stand and on Saturday afternoons and say to people who were passing, what do you think of this? Which is just ridiculous. I mean, no one's going to stop. We then encourage people to write letters to us. So I, I'm, I'm really pretty obsessed and I'm, I'm talking to all sorts of organisations at the moment about how do we get people to engage in placemaking using the technology available that doesn't involve them having to turn out into a church hall on a Tuesday in November. I mean, the staff don't even want to be there. So right. why, would, why would you leave your house and come and talk to me in a church hall? Well, and, and more dangerously, there's probably a particular sort <laughs> that does turn up. Absolutely, absolutely. So you, so you get one tiny segment of the voice. So I'm very, very interested in how we use virtual reality oh. and how, we, how people can do this from the comfort of their own home. And how we harvest the views of the people who live in places we've already created. So I know lots from our repair service. So I know what works. I know what layouts work from feedback. But what does the place feel like? So Lendlease down at Elephant Park have done amazing things with virtual reality. It started off as, as a way to sell properties when they go abroad. You can put the, all the VR yeah. glasses and you can see the view of the shard. And wow, there you go, sign the bottom line. But what actually happened was they realised that when they used the VR, they could spot where the trees were actually going to block the views from the flats they were selling with a view. 
and where the trees were going to cause dark spots and spots mm. where antisocial behaviour might happen. They also used it with Southern Council to be able to place the CCTV cameras, the security cameras they needed to put in. So it's got amazing uses. So we've got to be able to, to do that where, you know, you can sit in your own home and figure this out. I saw last night there's some trailer for a, a tr- programme on one of the TV channels where they're going to use VR to do your home extension. So if we can do it for that, surely something like LNQ. So I'm, I've put the feelers out to a couple of, about three organisations now, and I'm really interested in people coming to me with ideas on, on how we do this. I don't want to sit in a church hall anymore. I know there are a number of solutions out there. We'll be speaking in the coming weeks to um, Savannah de Savary of Built ID. And I know she's using um, kind of gamification to try and engage with, with a, wider, a much wider audience. Absolutely. One of the joys of a, a mixed-use approach is that there is far greater scope to create different uses for the benefits of, of other users, uh, rather than just trying to obtain the, the greatest value for any, any given use in isolation. How do you approach what kind of uses and occupiers are needed to supplement your main focus, which is presumably the residential? You do have to think about who's going to live there and where they're going to buy a pint of milk, basically. So um, if you go out to Kidbrook, the Barclay Homes development out there, one of the things Tony Pidgeley did when he first started work on that big scheme was to put in a temporary space and... Um, I'm not sure of the exact nature of the deal, but I have a feeling he may have paid Sainsbury's to open up a small pop-up shop there. That really changed the nature of the place because otherwise it was a mile to the nearest town centre and that's yeah. people just don't want to live like that. So, so you do need to think about it from the residential point of view. But I'm a real believer in, in the organic nature of, of the market. The, the, the market knows what's going to work. Um, and sometimes, as a former bureaucrat, you can get slightly obsessed with, well, I'd like uh, I'd like a doctor's surgery there, I'd like a chemist there, I'd like a butcher, I'd like this and the other. It's, the market will, will often say what's going to work. But you've got to, you've got to create the incentives. Are the rents going to be right to attract some new and creative people out to the area? We saw during the Olympics in Hackney, we saw a lot of the artistic community pushed out through Hackney Wick, who've then moved to places like Barkington Centre, could they be lured out? Because what comes with them is activity, bars, restaurants, and an almost a visitor community to you know come and see and feel what's going on. I think that that's kind of the nub of my question, which is that it is changing, but a historic criticism of mainstream house builders has that been commercial element has too often been an oversight. So the easiest option is normally Tesco local, 25-year lease, or sell it off, off you go. But actually... It could be mutually beneficial to get someone who's going to pay you less rent, less secure covenant, but create a more interesting environment and therefore maybe help with your occupancy and residential elements anyway. Couldn't agree more. I think you do need the basics. You do need that shop. Other providers are available and um, local shops can sell milk and bread. No, I absolutely agree. And my time working, say, in Shoreditch in Hackney was often about people like us standing back and just enabling and making it happen and taking a risk, frankly. And if that means you know, you're charging five quid a square foot to get someone in to kick something off, so be it. As long as you are able to make sure there's a decent mix right. and that, that the use isn't contradicting resi. Oh, I was one of the advocates in the, the current London plan in pushing the boundaries of thinking around what can sit comfortably with residential. So making space, arts and creative, technical and digital, all of these things sit well with resi where, you know, 
car bashing and meat rending don't. So it's that kind of level of, of control. It's, it's, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom, really. And I love the idea of some kind of artistic um, use for that. And trying to do it in the long term as well. So, so if we're offering five pounds a square foot now, we're, we're actually trying to build up the base of artistic, creative, technical, digital, whatever it is, and not just kicking them out in three years when they, we want to make a bigger profit. Because, right. again, we're in, we're in it for the longer yeah. term. So on your website, it states that placemaking goes beyond providing great buildings and public spaces. It's about capitalising on our local neighbourhood assets and aspirations to generate an authentic sense of community. This is being talked about a lot at the moment, and it, and it slightly touches on what you were just talking about with the artistic community. How, how do you create something and retain the authenticity? Authenticity, when you're, you're talking about something that's brand new, is interesting, because authenticity in somewhere like Barking Riverside, is that the Sunday market? So, I mean, that's fairly authentic out there. And it's about creating the opportunities for the community to engage themselves. So, for example, we're in very early conversations with Sport England about how we design the place in such a way that people will feel like it's nice to go out for a walk, to um, bump into people in the street, go jogging, outdoor gyms, whatever it is. And already we've been running some, say, over the summer, we've been running some events for the residents who do live there where we created a beach so we put some sand down on the foreshore, make sure we didn't get in the way of the seals, um, and encouraged people down to to sit there, to have picnics, to talk, to, to just be in a space. We've just been told that the Church of England have um, bought a house or buying a house out there for their vicar. Oh. So, yeah, so that sort of thing, somebody else who has a long-term interest in the area, and it's making sure that we have those spaces for... Uh, faith groups to meet so having a large space where uh, people can do that and and then letting it bloom in in some way so it'll be sort of small contributions by us but not creating a not designing a space that stops people bumping into each other so something you know I've, I've lived in new towns over the years where segregating the pedestrians from the car seemed like a very good idea but right. it, it, it just meant the pedestrian areas were places you didn't want to go because yeah you, you felt very far removed so it's about making a place that that people can be together you touched on traffic how do you approach kind of designing new new urban areas with i mean do, do you have a view on how road use will develop Am I allowed to mention Brompton Cycles? I'm, I'm a big oh, yeah. Brompton oh, yeah. fan, <laughs> fan, so I haven't got it with me today because I'm heading to the Lake District later. We're very, very keen in what we're doing in Barking that we, we embrace the healthy streets philosophy that's in the Mayor's transport strategy, for example. So we're not saying no to cars, but we are saying that the roads have got to be multi-purpose. It's got to feel comfortable to walk and cycle in those areas and it's got to be positively encouraged. Um, and also saying to people that you, you don't have to have, you know, although we're working hard on the train, it is OK to have a walk to the bus stop or to walk you know, a bit longer than you normally would to get on a bus to go and get public transport in, in the centre of parking. We've really got to encourage people to move more and you've got to make it as good as you can. And air quality, you know, you're not far from the A13, so we also want the place to be very green so that we're dealing with as much of the, the nasty air quality as possible. And we're also talking to Barking Council, who've got Barking Dagnum Council, who've got some fantastic ideas about putting the A13 in a tunnel, which would be absolutely wonderful if they could pull that off. 
On the green element, can you mash the concept of community and greening by kind of encouraging, I don't know, gardening clubs and within public spaces? Absolutely. I did a lot of work with Rosie Boycott at um, City Hall a few years ago on the Grow London concept. We had things like edible bus stops in Brixton. We had all <laughs> sorts of stuff. And the, the edible bus stop in Brixton was such a brilliant idea. It was this real horrible grot spot between Clapham North and Stockwell. And um, the local community sort of adopted this space and had been doing a little bit of guerrilla gardening. And then with a few hundred quid from the mayor's office, this is now the most gorgeous place. And all of the local residents make sure it's watered in the summer and it's weeded all year round. Um, and they, they come and chat around this bus stop. It's wonderful. Uh, that More does sound awesome. I, I need to check that out. I'm not Land or Road. <laughs> I mentioned in the past that this is uh, barking is, is a long-term construction project. Yeah. And partly your approach will hopefully speed up the delivery by not being reliant on, on sales absorption. You're also looking at modern methods of construction. Um, we, we can't quite pull the cover off it yet, but there is something hidden down at Barking going on with a startup modular ah. company. Yes. So I think in probably about a month's time, we'll be able to pull the, the sheet off that. Uh, and this it's is really on, on-site manufacturing. It's, it's that small. They're actually, in a Victorian kind of way, they're manufacturing on-site. Um, and we're going to test it out with them. We are fascinated by where this is going to go. One of the things that keeps me awake at night is the quality of new-built homes. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody in the industry is getting this right. I think some people talk a good talk, but actually scratch the surface. We have a problem. We have we have labour shortages. We have we we've lost sight of quality. We seem to be just concerned at doing this at speed build it in Scarper. Um, and again, back to this point, if we're one of the great estates, it'll cost me money as well as absolutely deeply disturbing people's lives. You know, your home is your place of safety and sanctuary. And if you've got water running down the inside of the walls, it's infested with something, oh, whatever it is, we've, we've got to get it right. And I really see offsite manufacturing as a way of doing that. So you can get to a point where the offsite is technology enabled and you can effectively do predictive maintenance. As a long-term owner, that's going to be awesome. Absolutely. And the maintenance guys and my construction guys, because we have an in-house construction team, they're all equally excited about this because they, they, they see the future. I mean, I'm old enough to remember Tomorrow's World. You're oh, yeah, do you remember that? Yeah, <laughs> very vaguely. But I remember it in the 1970s where, you know, my mother trying to get our old British Leyland-made car started in the 1970s and would struggle because it was probably coming off the production line on a bad day. And on Tomorrow's World, they had the new Fiat plant in northern Italy where they were building cars by robots for the first time. And uh, it was just amazing, absolutely amazing. And I, I feel the same about housing. We've just got to make that leap. That's the analogy a lot of modular builders will give you, the, the car customising yeah. your house on, on the internet like you do a, a car. Shall we mention the Brexit word? If the car industry in Britain is is going to suffer on the back of this continued uncertainty we could actually solve Britain's manufacturing jobs problem by shifting into modular housing. So we've got fantastic people who work for um, work in the Midlands who potentially could lose their jobs, and it's very transferable technology and skills. You will also potentially have a, a crunch on the, uh, the number of uh, existing em employees within the construction industry, so that may well be a neat yeah. solution. Yeah. What is LNQ's approach 
in terms of embracing elements of the smart city? I know we, we've touched on community engagement, but beyond that, I think I guess I'm talking about sensors and yeah, yeah. monitoring. We have our first smart estate, which is the Ocean Estate in East London, where we're trialling, um, we're throwing everything at it. We're, we're trialling everything from sensors on lifts that will email us before a resident had to ring us and tell us something's gone wrong. Um, we've got a voice activated, you can mention Alexa, can't you, in, in the foyer where people can go in and go, Alexa, can I talk to somebody from L&Q? Um, and they will be connected to us. So we're trialling all of that. And my next meeting this, this afternoon is on how we build that in on a brand new development. Right. Um, because on the ocean, we've been retrofitting it. We're super interested in this. And we see it as, as it's got to be the future. And what we're worried about is, is that we end up buying the sort of Betamax of, of whatever new technology is. So we've, we've got to design our homes and our, our new builds in such a way that whatever the technology is, we can adapt and move. Yeah. And well, hopefully, if, I guess if it's software-led rather than hardware. That, that. So the, the, the um, prime example of the smart city, which everyone's talking about, is uh, sidewalk labs in Toronto. A lot of talk about building a city from the internet up. Do you think that's kind of slightly getting the perspective wrong? Are you, uh... There's room for all these thoughts. Um, I was out at the Crystal the other week, with the, the Siemens Crystal, and um, it's open to the public, fantastic, to wander around their uh-huh. exhibition and see how they're using data to work out what cities should be doing next mm. and how we can be far more sustainable just in power terms, or in how we use power, light, water... I'm, I'm sure at some point uh, there is going to be a horrible uh, GDPR experience for someone along these routes, but it does seem that, <laughs> uh, that we will be able to make uh, kind of yeah incredible insights, which are just not possible without this tech. Smart city trickles down to smart buildings, uh, but it seems you're going to start in the other way around, so it's buildings to city. Um, but ultimately, when Barking Riverside is up and running, will, will you be interested in things like traffic flows and what goes on in the in the town absolutely absolutely because it's just off the a13 as well to the west of it there's still quite a, a vibrant industrial area with a lot of truck movements backwards and forwards we will be interested in all sorts of technology and and how it works we've got to be clear about flood defenses it's the, the it's the other side of the thames barrier uh, we've we've got to understand climate change and the impact, sustainable urban drainage, all of that is, has got to work properly. And also we have our NVAC system and our, our um, ecology and waste centre out there. And that's going to give us incredible data about how people, you know, what, what are people throwing in the bin? It's going to be, it's going to be so useful. And in terms of L&Q, what, what is the, beyond building a lot of houses, what's, what is the medium term ambition? It is building a lot of housing. But it's also about some sector leadership on these issues like quality. Uh, we can't have people thinking that new build is, is a second-rate product. We, we've got to get it right first time. We are, we're talking about people's homes. We are talking about huge investments by people in, if they buy the home. Um, and we're hemorrhaging money in long-term maintenance if we don't get it right. We, we really have to crack into this. Offsite manufacture is part of it, but one of the things that shocks me is just lack of pride in jobs people are doing. We've identified 74 of our subcontractors, um, and we'll be calling them together to have a, have a discussion with them about you know, how do, what went wrong, how, how do we fix this. We're going to show them some anonymised photographs of things we found behind the plasterboard. Really just say, is, is that the kind of place you want your kids, your grandkids living in? 
I certainly don't. No, building at scale is an incredibly complicated undertaking. And I think that is sometimes overlooked by particularly the, the media. That's, that's not an excuse for, for poor quality. But with, with a growing need for more houses and uh, effectively a shrinking labour force, it's slightly obvious that quality is going to be the, uh, the victim. Yep. And do you think we'll see further consolidation within the, uh, the registered providers? Well, obviously, we've announced our uh, desire to acquire Trafford. But that, for us, is, is about, oh, it's about two things. It, it's a presence in the northwest because we, we want to solve the housing crisis. And if you look at some of the prices in, in Manchester and places in Cheshire and the Ribble Valley, you're talking multiples of, of income, 10 times the average income to buy in, in parts of Cheshire. We've, we've got a problem to solve. But with Trafford, for us in Trafford, it's, it's about a, a meeting of minds, really. We're the same culture, yeah. which is, is fascinating. They've, they've got, um, similar to our LNQ Foundation, they have a charitable arm that works with ex-offenders, for example, and we're really keen to learn about that. But it's, it's I, I don't know, it's hard to say. I mean, the, the current problems with the property market, whether they're Brexit-related or whether it's just the standard downturn in the market... There could be some people in trouble. We don't know. Um, but I don't see anything big on the horizon. I think we've all got quite big now. So on, on to the final piece of our, our interview, which is my three favourite questions. <laughs> so we, we start with uh, the one book you'd recommend for our listeners, which is Influence Your Thinking and What You Do. Since I started at Q, I've been talking to people about Matthew Side's Black Box Thinking, oh. which... When you're building and you're trying to build quality, if you look at his comparison between the aeronautic industry and um, the NHS, for example, and where if a plane goes down, and we've seen it very recently, uh, very unfortunately, with the um, 737 MAX 8, everybody throws all their data in, and whether it's the plane manufacturer, the airline, the pilots association, everybody says, let's learn from this. So every time you get in a plane, it gets safer and safer to fly. Whereas the medical profession, I'm afraid, are still in the, let's put our arms around this problem, let's deny anything went wrong. And what I've found in joining this sector, we're still in a bit of put our arms around the problem and, yeah, let's tell everybody it's fine. Where I would like the construction industry to be a bit more black box thinking in, in terms of let's fix this. Yeah, so Mark Farmer's up on the box <laughs> yes. promoting promoting better quality so we'll get behind mark yeah absolutely so your favorite building no they're probably the housing minister won't want to hear this but i love tall buildings i really really love tall buildings um and i'm afraid my favorite is the shard oh, okay yeah so i worked on the um planning application originally so i know a lot about the gubbins behind it and, and how it's put together but also it it has landed well in that place. So you, you're seeing the combination of it with, and this is probably my second favourite, is London Bridge Station, the new yeah, yeah. London Bridge Station, and how they work together and how they've opened up Thomas Street. Um, and it's it's just beautiful. Uh, would you go as far as supporting the tulip? No. No, I think it's a gimmick. I think it's uh, no offence to the architects involved, but no, I, 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 I think it compromises London skyline. I think you've got 22 Bishopsgate coming out of the ground now, the Lipton development, which is going to be the tallest building in the city for a while, and I think it is a thing of beauty also. You've got to stick to you know, proper clusters of tall yeah. buildings, and the tulip just doesn't fit for me. 
thank God I'm not in charge of planning in City Hall anymore. <laughs> well, it's good. Dreadful we, decision we to have get to make. The, get the honest, uh, <laughs> the honest answers. And our, our, sadly, our last question, which is um, the technology, business or idea that is your tip to impact the built environment in the coming years? Uh, it, it's, it's fully robotic um, offset manufacture. Yeah, you, you've got to take the car industry and put it into construction. Um, you've got to get more. You've got to get more women involved in in construction. And if we build it in a factory and properly manufacture it in a factory, you've more chance of getting women involved as well. You've got to have a more diverse workforce. Yeah, robots. And, and speaking to uh, a number of um, offsite manufacturers, that that seems to be the, the lesson learned and this kind of stage one has been. It, it probably is manufacturers you need rather than traditional builders. I mean, a lot of a lot of the manufacturers come to see me and they take me to show me their factories and they they're just a bunch of builders in a shed. This is it needs to move to the next level now, and the only way we're going to do it is if people like L and Q with our huge pipeline say this is the way we're going. And we we've come out in the press and we've said within well by twenty twenty five a hundred percent of our homes will have an element of offsite manufacture. Uh, well, I, I think the the direction of travel is clear, and we we were mentioning earlier that Jordan Rosenhaus and uh, Top Hat have secured seventy five million of funding from Goldman Sachs, which is uh, clearly a sign that things are heading in that direction. Yeah, that was brilliant. Fiona, thank you so much for coming in and and uh, telling us all about what you're what you're up to. Um, it's been a fascinating 40 minutes and uh, yeah we should look forward to tracking your progress with interest thank you i've loved it thank you while the scale of fiona's job sends my head into somewhat of a spin that's an amazingly interesting insight into how one of the uk's largest owner of residential property is approaching the continued supply demand imbalance in the country's housing stock given lnq's scale it's very telling that Fiona sees a large part of the future of house building as modular manufacturing. They're not alone. LNG, Barclay Homes and now Goldman Sachs, amongst others, are all heavily invested in the sector, and it's only heading in one direction. Flagship projects like Barking Riverside can be a great shot window for innovation, and I look forward to the unveiling of the on-site modular construction they've been deploying there. Join me in two weeks' time when I'll be talking about the role of technology in community engagement with Savannah DeSavery, founder of Built ID. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.